0: You may open your Bibles with me to First Samuel chapter 18. First Samuel chapter 18. We began this course that we're following a few weeks ago by turning to Psalm 45, where the psalmist under inspiration wrote, my heart is indicting a good matter. Amen. I speak of the things which I have made concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Amen. Amen. Psalm 45 verses 1 and 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ. Fairer than the children of men. Then we went to Song of Solomon, chapter 5, where the wife in that love song, Psalm 45 is a love song, but it's a short version of the long version. The long version is song, Solomon's song of eight chapters. And in the fifth chapter, the wife is pursuing her husband, and she enlists the help of other women in the city, And they ask him, well, what makes your husband special enough for us to stop what we're doing and to help you? Oh, you daughters of Jerusalem, my husband is altogether superior to yours. And she goes and describes him in graphic detail. And one of the details she gives in the 10th verse is he is chiefest among 10,000. And so we have a song that we a spiritual song that we sing sometimes. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He's the chiefest among 10,000. She describes his legs, she describes his hair, she describes his cheek, his belly. She describes him in detail and she just comes to a point where she has to burst out and say, "He is altogether lovely." Right. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. And so we have taken the course of comparing the Lord Jesus Christ to the most ideal husband that we can imagine, to show that our imagination does not work well enough, nor can it reach high enough to match the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't even come close. We work ourselves up on every one of these traits over the last number of weeks. And then when we bring the Lord Jesus Christ to bear, it all falls apart. Because he is altogether lovely in every trait that a man could have and should have. He is infinitely superior. Let me, in the next few minutes, take two, if the Lord will be merciful, traits that we ought to consider. The first I'd like to take is reputation. A great man has a glorious name and an honorable reputation with others that enhances his marital value the greater the date or the greater the husband the more honored and flattered the girl or wife is at being married to him should be obvious to you when others know and praise a date or a husband It is even more honoring to the wife that chose him. The Bible tells us that a good name is rather to be chosen than gold and silver. The most important pursuit you should make in a day or in a week is not to acquire things, not to get an education to acquire things, but to get an education and to acquire a good name and a good reputation. So that when your name is spoken, people are thinking good things Good things is defined by God when your name is spoken, right The Bible tells us that, so if the Bible tells us that a good name in proverbs twenty two one and in Ecclesiastes seven one is one of the chief pursuits of a life, then we must imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ has a a decent name, but momentarily, I have you turned to 1 Samuel eighteen because I want to remind you about David. All of First Samuel 18 is about David and his superiority to King Saul. But we'll just read the 30th verse. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. David conducted himself in such a way as a mighty man of valor, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, as conducting himself wisely, that his name was spoken of in the households of Israel, and much was set by the name of David. Jesus, our Lord, is the son of David. David had a great name. I mean, when the women of Israel sang about David immediately after first meeting him with the ugly cyclops head of Goliath in one hand and Goliath's sword in the other, they sang the song that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Of course, that didn't endear him to the reigning king, Saul. But that's what they sang about David immediately after the bold way in which he took Goliath down in the name of the Lord Jehovah. And so we have this statement made about David. But what joy and what excitement and what praise and thanksgiving should fill our hearts... To be married not to David, but to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has a name that far surpasses David. Every time we mention the name of David, we also have to remember a woman named Bathsheba. We have to remember her husband named Uriah. We have to remember 70,000 men who lost their lives because David numbered Israel. We have to remember a dysfunctional family where he lost his own sons. We have to remember the rape of a daughter by a brother in his family. So that on his deathbed, he would say, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. Although my house be not so with God, Jesus is better. Does Jesus have a name that we can trust in? Do you like Philippians chapter 2? You know it. Should you quote it to me or should I quote it to you? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a... Name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What joy and excitement would there have been for a woman to marry David? You say, well, it wouldn't have been that exciting because he had so many wives. It still would have been a good thing to be married to David. How do you know that you were going to be wife number seven and your son would be the next king, as was the case with Bathsheba and her son Solomon? To have a man whose name is much set by, that in the homes people are talking about your fiancé, people are talking about your husband because he is famous in good homes for his wisdom, his righteousness, his valor, I'll tell you one thing, I'd rather be married to David than Saul, even if Saul was monogamous and David was polygamous. Oh, my, no comparison. Who in the world would want to waste a life with King Saul? What about our Lord Jesus Christ? God's given him a name which is above every name. And you know that name already this morning, the name of Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1, we are thinking about the name and reputation of a man. The higher it is, the more flattered and honored the wife is who's married to him. Name and reputation is a big part of a man. It's one of his chief pursuits in life according to the word of God. It should be very important to you that your name, your first name, your last name, and your name as a Christian, your three names, should be exalted by your conduct. That when somebody says your name, glorious thoughts fill their mind. Good thoughts, holy thoughts, noble thoughts, virtuous thoughts of your conduct, your words, your accomplishments, your spirit. Lord, help us to that end, but that is not my point. We should have that good name, every one of us. And those good names, first, last, and as a Christian. But we want to think about our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does he have a name? And I tell you from Philippians 2 that I quoted to you, he has a very exalted name that's above every name. Believe it. Your husband has a name that is above every name. I am thankful for the well-spoken feedback that I got from this series of messages by one who told me that their personal relationship and their love of Christ has been increased by thinking of him more personally in these terms by which we're describing him. That he is personal, and he is a true and real person, not just a theological concept, but a real man. And he loves me, and he delights in me, and he's mine. And I can trust him, and I can delight in all these features of his. I hope that is true of you as well as the person who spoke it to me. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle said in verse 20, speaking of the power of God that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. He fills all in all, but that God-man that fills all in all is not full, is not complete without you and me. The verses say it which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, the church. We make up the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head, we're the body. We are joined together, we're his flesh, his bone, as chapter 5 in this same epistle tells us. But what I want is that he's been exalted by God, according to Ephesians 1.21, far above every name that is named. You can name Gabriel, and you can name Michael, and you can name Lucifer, but the Lord Jesus Christ is far above every name. In this world, in time, and the world that is coming in time, in this world that you can see, and in the unseen world of principalities and powers in heavenly places, the orders and ranks and authority and battalions of the angelic host, good and evil, he is far above them all. Praise his glorious name. Does he have a name? Does he have a reputation? Look at Matthew chapter 17 and see a few of our brethren that made an error. Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John make an error in that they would compare the Lord Jesus Christ to Moses and Elijah. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and takes them into a high mountain apart from the rest of the apostles and the followers of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Thank you for bringing us to the Mount of Transfiguration for us to see this. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, And one for Elias. While he yet spake. Before he could get his vain idea completely out of his mouth. And oh, I wonder who among us would be the impetuous ones to say such a thing. Lord, help us to always see you far above Moses and Elijah and every other name that is to be named. You know, as a boy hearing Bible stories... There was a temptation and I fulfill the temptation many times. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven to see David or Jehu or Moses or Noah. We want to get to heaven to see the Lord Jesus Christ and we need to keep our priorities right. While he yet spake, that is Peter, the impetuous apostle, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. They were glad to be there. Then they wished they weren't there, after they had said what they said. But look at God defending the integrity of the name and reputation of His Son. Does the Lord Jesus Christ have a name and a reputation? Yes. And there is none to be compared to it. Amen. You could ask a certain lame man from his mother's womb, if you'll turn to Acts 3, we're going to ask him. Or we're going to look and see the circumstances of his healing about the name and reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you all understand easily and clearly that a woman who marries a man who has a great name, who's talked about at home, who's talked about at all times in good terms as being a hero and a successful man and a prosperous man and a good man, and he has a reputation of goodness and excellence and virtue, that a woman married to such a man is honored and flattered, and she would be excited and thankful that he would have any interest in her and that he would betroth her to be his wife. Brethren, The point is this. The Lord Jesus Christ has done so. He has chosen us. Unbelievable as it is. And should you love Him, is there enough about Him to warrant your affection for Him? Oh yes. Oh yes, what a name. Above every name. Who gave Him the name? Not some father on earth, but a father in heaven, Almighty Jehovah God. In Acts chapter 3... Verse 1, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. This was a healing service. This was a real healing service. Not a fake one where there are handlers that have already screened everyone that ever makes it to the stage. So that they will be psychologically vulnerable to a breath from Benny Hinn to fall down. This is a healing story. And it was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have any money, man lame from your mother's womb. But what I do have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, that is your husband. Do you like that? In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. But he didn't just walk, did he? He was leaping. He was leaping around like an escaped kangaroo because his ankle bones received strength. You know, where's his physical therapist? Those of you that are going to school to be PTs or PTAs, where was his physical therapist? He would never walked in his life. Ah, when the Lord Jesus Christ says the word or when his apostles say the word by his name, great things happen. How about chapter 4 when they told the apostles they shouldn't preach in the name of Jesus? Here's what Peter answered. Verse 12. Ah, Let's get verse 10. I'm sorry. I need 10 through 12 to get the whole story. This man, this lame man takes up two chapters. He's seen here and there in two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, because it was a pretty big deal in Jerusalem because everyone that went to worship God in the temple knew that man by appearance. And now he's leaping around the apostles on a daily basis. Verse 10 of Acts 4, when the the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees call them into question, Be it known unto you all, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you all. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a woman gets excited about marrying a man because he's known by his first name or he's known by his last name and it's an honorable name and a great name, that is so pitiful in comparison to this. Our husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is the greatest name under heaven given among men. It's far above all every name in this world and in the world to come. It can heal a certain man lame from his mother's womb. And there is no salvation outside that name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your son Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, the Philip the evangelist who had previously been a deacon went down to the city of Samaria and preached Jesus to them. And it tells us in Acts 8.12 But when they believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and Women. The apostle Paul is converted. He was Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. In Acts chapter 9, a voice appeared to him in a bright light on the road to Damascus. He fell down dead, as dead. And that voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. Change that man's life for the rest of his life. He spent a few days with Ananias, receiving strength, getting baptized, and he went into the synagogue straightway and preached Jesus was the Christ. He had the name of his husband, and he knew it well. Look at Acts chapter 16. Do you want your enemies to respect the name of your husband? Would you like your enemies to respect the name of your husband? That's part of a good name. That when enemies hear it, they tremble. Acts chapter 16. A spirit of divination. Here's a fortune teller. Here's a, here's a prophetess operating with the power of the devil. Verse 16 of Acts 16. In the city of Philippi of Macedonia, Greece. It came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And a few months later, The damsel was cured of devil possession? No. Not in my Bible, and I hope not in yours. And he came out the same hour. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, here are some gypsies, certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, "...took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them, and prevailed against them, So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Seven gypsies stripped naked and chased out of the house by one devil-possessed man when they took it upon themselves to use a name that they didn't have a right to use. The name of the Lord Jesus. It didn't work for them like it had worked for Paul in Acts chapter 16. They didn't have a right to that name. Brethren, our husband has a name. The devils tremble to hear the name of our Savior. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man that has defeated them at the cross of Calvary and who sits in heaven far above all of them. They cannot believe the angelic realms and hosts, battalions and armies. He's the captain of the Lord's hosts, plural, of all the armies. And they will obey him. Whenever they would meet him on earth, even in his state of humiliation, they would fall at his feet and they would worship him. And they would say, we know thee who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know he's going to torment them. They just thought it was a little early. This is the Lord Jesus. He's your husband. What would you be afraid of with this husband? Do you love Him and delight in Him for the great name that He has? All the angels of God worship Him. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father says of Him, Let all the angels of God worship Him. When He was a little baby lying in a manger, and the angels split the sky open in the countryside of Judea, were they praising and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, they were indeed. Those shepherds heard their instructions and went to see the babe lying in his swaddling clothes. Even as a baby, the Lord Jesus Christ had a name and had a reputation. He was over the angels, and the angels of God worshipped him. And I've already said to you this day about the beauty of Revelation chapter 5, where John sees God sitting on his throne and no one able to open the book, but the Lord Jesus Christ appears, the lion and the lamb, By two metaphors, showing his altogether loveliness. And he takes that book out of the hands of him that sat in the throne, and the four and twenty elders, and the angels, and every creature which is in heaven, and in the earth, and in the sea, and under the sea, sang praises to him. Blessing, and honor, and glory, and riches, and wisdom, and power. And what's the 14th verse say? And the 4B said, Amen. Amen. That's your husband. That's your husband. Do you love him? Are you ashamed to thank him for your food before you eat in a public place? Are you ashamed to say the name of Jesus? Don't say the name of God. That's not good enough because it's not even a name. Say the name of Jesus. It'll limit your friends. You won't have to worry about so many of them you know how great the name of your husband is? Every pagan in this world signs their checks. August 14th, 2011. 2011 what? 2011. Since our Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. It's your husband. Every check is dated according to your husband's birth. What else can we learn about him? This great man has a name and a reputation, but he is protective. We want the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that Psalm 2 gave us and the picture that we have just considered about devils trembling before him to be protective. A great man, a great husband, has not only the ability, but the commitment to protect his loved ones from any harm. Marriage, from a wife's perspective, includes a man to protect her from danger and trouble. The Bible says two are better than one, it gives four reasons why. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 9 through 12. A life of being alone and a life of solitariness and a life of being single is not good. It's not taught in the Bible. Two are better than one, and it gives four reasons, but we want the fourth. Two are able to withstand an enemy better than one. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you've got a friend, you can stand up against an enemy better than if you were alone. And if there's three of you, that is hard to overcome. You might be able to take a string and break it with your hands. But if you take that string and wind two others around it, I'd like to watch you try to break it. The strength of that unity... Of three, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The Lord Jesus Christ is our husband, and he has a great name and a great reputation, known in heaven and in earth. The angels of God worship him. The four and twenty elders fall down before him. Every creature that is in heaven and earth worships him. They all know he is Lord, and they shall bow the knee and confess with their mouth that he is Lord. But brethren, he is protective of his own. And I want you to know that. Children may reason like this when they're young and foolish in school. My dad can whip your dad. Children talk that way. My dad can whip your dad. But our husband can whip all comers. Forget your dad. He's going to get so weak he won't be able to draw his last breath. I speak of myself, not my father. My father may well watch me draw my last breath given that he still weighs the same amount he did in high school, and I don't. My dad can whip your dad. That's how little children like to think and talk. Well, if they like to think and talk that way, I like to think and talk this way. My husband can whip all comers. My husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible tells us he's a man of war. Exodus fifteen three, Isaiah forty two and verse thirteen. The Bible tells us he is a mighty conquering prince, and he in Psalm forty five is to gird on his sword and to ride forth marvelously. And the arrows of his his arrows will be sharp in the hearts of his enemies, by which they will fall under his feet. It's all in the love song of Psalm forty five, if you've read it. Revelation 19 describes him on that white horse with the armies of heaven following him, trampling his enemies. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, and his horse is dripping with the blood of his enemies. He is a protector of his people, and we need not fear anyone, anytime, anywhere, nor if they all conspire together against us, the Lord Jesus Christ is greater. Egypt was far greater than Israel, but by the time the Lord got done with Egypt, they were a base nation, and have really never changed much. They're still a base nation. Look at them now. Because God destroyed them. Because they had messed with His people. And that's my point right here. You have a husband that is able to protect you, and you have a husband that is committed to protecting you. So there is nothing of which you should be afraid. The Lord Jesus is incredibly protective of His bride, the church, which means you... Child of God. Where do we begin? Because so much of the Bible is comfort to his people of his faithful protection. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses. I sent you last evening for preparation for today. Oh, I hope every father will take these words to heart and be able to fulfill them to their children and their children's children. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. This is Moses just before he dies. Exhorting the congregation of Israel, the church of God under the Old Testament, to remember what God had done for them. They had spent 215 years in Egypt. They had gone down there 75 souls and they came out a couple million. They had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. He had fed them and given them water to drink. They ate angels' food. And they defeated their enemies that they encountered on that side of Jordan. Now they were going to cross Jordan to take the promised land. Here's a word of encouragement from Moses. Deuteronomy 32.7 Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. Here's God's electing grace, choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from among all other people. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Praise God for those wonderful words that the Lord in his providence, when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his special and particular and peculiar people, all other nations had their boundaries established and set as to how they would impact Israel for Israel's benefit and blessing and God's glory. Right. Because all that really mattered to the Lord was his people they were his portion and they were his lot I mean after all he leveled the nation of Egypt so that his people who had been slaves could leave with overtime pay and so they left with the gold and silver of Egypt and they went into the land of Canaan if you read Psalm 105 last evening they went into the land of Canaan with everything already prepared for them the wells had been dug the vineyards had been planted and were mature The houses were well furnished with good things and they took them all and annihilated every man, woman, and child and took possession of 70 cities because Israel was His people. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are His and He is yours and you will never be confounded or ashamed, world without end. He is committed to you like a loving husband and you are the apple of His eye. The apple of your eye is the pupil. The pupil is that little black center surrounded by the colored part of your eye, which is the iris. The iris expands or shrinks that little pupil, that aperture like a camera, in order to increase or decrease the amount of light allowed into your eye. If I shine a light in your face, without you thinking, and inside of a second, your aperture, your pupil, will close to block out that bright light. And if you're in a dark room, and you quickly turn on the lights, you'll see that that pupil will have enlarged almost to the full size of the iris because it's trying to grasp for whatever light is available. Yes, you have night vision in your eyeballs. But it's called the apple of the eye because they thought that that little black thing was shaped like an apple, that it was a globular thing, but it's not. It's just an aperture. And if you get close to someone you love, and the problem is if you get close to someone you hate, and you look into their eye, you can see a little miniature of yourself in their pupil. In some European languages, this pupil and this apple of the eye refers to this little miniature because it's like a pupil. It's like a little person. It's like a little student in the eye. But it's called the apple of the eye, and it's about five times in your Bibles because it's a figure of speech, meaning something incredibly precious to us. Our sight is very dear to us. And it's amazing the different layers of protection that we have over them. And those of you who have taken anatomy recently, please be merciful. But the layers of protection that we have over that eye and that pupil, and then the lids that will close to protect it, and the hairs that are there to keep dust away, and the eyebrow, and the bony structure around the eye to protect it, you can take a pretty good blow on your face. And your eyeballs will still work because they're sunk in behind that bony protection around it. But you shine a light in your face, and that aperture closes up instantly. We are the apple of God's eye. We are the pupil of God's eye. In God's eye, I can see myself. Can you see yourself in God's pupil? Now, the God of heaven doesn't have eyeballs because he's an invisible spirit, the Bible tells us. But he's using this figure of speech for you to get excited about it. Right. When I look into the eyes of God through his word, there's a little Jonathan Crosby standing there. And he protects me as the apple of his eye. Amen. He's always protected me. Right. Did you like these words from Psalm 105? They go like this. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in the land of Canaan. It's Psalm 105, verse 12, now verse 13. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Isn't that wonderful? They try... They wanted to do something bad to Moses. Pharaoh got tired of Moses, you know. But Moses escaped that nation and the Red Sea. Abraham and his wife Sarah were delivered twice from Pharaoh and from Abimelech. So was Isaac and Rebekah. The Lord delivered them whenever they were in trouble. And he would just say the word, Don't you dare touch mine. They're mine. You know, The house of Pharaoh and the house of Abimelech had a great deal of problems when they were trying to take Abraham's wife, Sarah, to be their his wife. A lot of trouble. Until he gave them back to her rightful husband. Can you find the book of Zechariah? It's right near the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi. One of the prophets that God raised up to encourage Zerubbabel to rebuild the city and the temple. I want to get this little expression again, the apple of the eye. It's not really an apple, it's your pupil. It's your pupil, it's that little black part inside your iris, the colored part, that gets smaller and larger regarding light and how quickly it's able to close to protect from bright light. And it's one of the dearest things we have and it's protected by many anatomical features so that we keep our eyesight all the things that my brother and I did as boys you know we should have patches on one eye at least the lord's merciful the lord protects us right i wasn't thinking about you throwing that nut at me at the moment that hit me right in my pupil so i went a- but now that i've started i might as well finish the story so i went around for a while with one pupil as big as my iris But it got better. The Lord takes care of boys. Boys will be boys. I found it in my mother's diary about her taking me in the last few weeks. I found it in my mother's diary about her hauling me to the doctor a few times because of that little nut incident. But there, there were also BB guns and pellet guns and other things. And we both see. Thank you, Lord. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 2.8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts. This is your husband speaking. After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Oh, Babylon is in trouble. Babylon's in trouble. After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you... Toucheth the apple of his eye. And it's called getting a poke in the eye. When you get a poke in the eye, there is an automatic and a violent reaction because it is a painful and a, and a sensitive and a valuable part of your anatomy. This is a picture, a word picture that the Bible gives us about the protective nature of the Lord Jesus Christ towards you. The Bible says to you that you are the apple of his eye. You are like his pupil. He is going to protect you. And those that touch you, He says, or try to touch you, don't you dare touch mine anointed. And He suffered them to do you no wrong. The Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, and it goes on, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Your husband will protect you. He has the ability, and he is committed. You say, well, that's just an Old Testament metaphor of a shepherd. Aha! But we have John chapter 10, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am not like a hireling. A hireling seeth the wolf coming, and fleeth. And the sheep are scattered. He fleeth because he's a hireling. That's somebody who works for day wages. But I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. If I see a wolf coming, I will go to battle with that wolf. Jesus describes himself in the New Testament as a shepherd. I will go to battle with that wolf even at the risk of my life in order to preserve the sheep. I am nothing like a hireling. So the metaphor carries into our present testament and dispensation of God's grace toward us. Now, of course, the wolf has already been vanquished. If you want to make the wolf the devil, Jesus already defeated him on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ will protect us. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and glory in these words. We often turn to them for their exhortation to teach us contentment with our lives, but it goes on from contentment to security and boldness. Hebrews 13:5 Let your conversation, that is your lifestyle, your manner of living, let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So because we have Jesus with us all the time, we should be content with whatever our life circumstances are that we cannot easily change according to God's word. What God has dealt us, we should be thankful with. Because He's with us. And as long as the Lord is with us, that makes everything good. But there's another aspect to having Him with us and never forsaking us. And it's 6th verse, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The words, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, should make us content with our lives. And the words should also make us bold in any time of danger or trouble because who can hurt me? The Lord is my helper. He is protective. Your husband is a very protective husband. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul said, all men forsook me at my first answer to Caesar. There was no one that would stand with him. There was no one courageous enough. But do you know what he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4? But the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is committed to your protection. The Lord Jesus Christ said, My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He has charged his angels to take care of you, according to Psalm 91, lest you fall and dash your foot against a stone. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Why is that angel there to protect you and to deliver you? Because he's been charged with that duty as your servant by his Lord, the head of all angels, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He sent his apostles into a dangerous world by almighty power. When he commissioned those poor fishermen to go into all nations of the earth and preach a gospel that would be foolishness by, perceived as foolishness by Greeks and considered a stumbling block by Jews, he prefaced it with this remark. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Amen. Go ye therefore. I'll close with second Thessalonians chapter one. Two things we want to see about our Savior today. First, he has a name and a reputation that ought to fill us with excitement because wherever he goes and wherever his name is used authoritatively and properly, men and devils tremble before it. Elders and angels worship in heaven. His name is far above every name that is named in any world that you want to think of, and he's our husband You can use that name and protect your home. You can use that name and protect your family. You can use that name and trust your soul to that name. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The Thessalonians were being messed with by their countrymen and by others in their city. So that the apostle could say of them, in verse four, "We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God." Second Thessalonians one four, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. They were enduring persecutions and tribulations, and he goes on to say, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be accounted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. It was a privilege for them to suffer like Christ had suffered, to show their unity and agreement with him. But then verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. These poor Thessalonians were being persecuted for the gospel's sake. But the Apostle Paul could write them this epistle and tell them, rest with us. It says that in verse 7, rest with us. It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation. He's going to repay all your enemies with the tribulation and worse that they have given you for having troubled you in your life. We are still the apple of his eye. We have a husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the high king of heaven. His name of Jesus is higher than any name that is to be named. And he is committed to our protection in this world and life. And in the next world, he will give us eternal life and deliver us from all angels, devils, and men. Praise his glorious name. Do you love your Savior? Are you committed to obeying him and serving him, worshiping him and praising him and walking with him day by day? That is the bottom line, that we believe on him and live a life worthy of his name. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.